This morning, well, let me start by saying this. Where does a sermon come from? I don't know if any of you have ever preached out there, but if you ever thought to yourself, where does a sermon come from? They come from all over the place. Uh, Sometimes um, topics come to my mind as I study through the Bible. Sometimes topics will come to my mind just, uh, you know, maybe like the current situation that we're facing in America. You know, that may stimulate a thought and, and a sermon may come from that and Sometimes sermons come from just life experiences, and I've noticed that lately, for me, it seems like uh, a lot of the sermons that that have been on my mind come from uh, conversations that uh, we have around our house with our children, and uh, we try to take uh, time throughout the day periodically if something comes up to sit down and talk to our kids about this, that, or the other, and sometimes those thoughts stay with me, and the Lord continues to uh, hopefully develop those, and um, today... uh, the sermon that I've got on my mind today is, uh, is kind of a sermon that comes from just some uh, life experiences that I've had lately. And I would say, just to start off with, let me uh, lay a little groundwork here uh, with a little example that uh, from, from our life. About a year and a half ago, uh, we've got four children, as you know, Emma's the oldest, uh, and then Bailey, and then uh, Hank, and then Jack. So my two oldest are girls, and uh, about a year and a half ago or so, they came to me, maybe a little more than that, maybe two years ago, and they were like, Dad, can we please, 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 y'all heard that, the the triple please, 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 can we please, please, please uh, get a horse? Oh, please, Dad, we want a horse, we want a horse, we want a horse. And I said, no, absolutely not. Uh, There's going to be a lot of upkeep. Uh, they're dangerous, and you know I've got enough you know things I've got to juggle right now. The last thing I need is is to have a horse running around here. And so um, you know, a little time goes by, and uh, Dad, please, can we have a horse? You know, you'd see them over there reading a horse book, and they kind of look at you to make sure you knew they were reading a horse book. And, oh, I'm so interested. I'm I'm learning how to take care of horse for dummies. You know, we have a, the horse for dummies book. And I flip through that. You see me? See I'm reading that? You know? No, absolutely not. No horses. So we have five horses, and we're building a barn, and I fenced in most uh, a large part of our property. So that's where we are right now, and we're, we've we've learned a lot about those horses in the past. Uh, you know, we've we've had them about a year. It took about six months for them to wear me down. So we've had them about a year, a little over a year. We've learned some fun lessons and some hard lessons and some painful lessons with those horses. But the other day we were getting ready to go to a show. The uh, the, the girls that we, uh, Emma and Bailey, they do uh, you know little rodeos and they barrel race and they do that kind of stuff. And we were getting ready to, to load the horses up and go to a show. You know they finally opened up all the events back up and we were getting ready to go to a barrel race. And so I'd kind of gotten our trailer loaded and I was sitting outside and um, looking down across the pasture while we're waiting for the girls to bring up some of the horses that we were going to take. And I noticed that these five horses were just uh, like wild Mustang galloping around the pasture. And you would see just the herd of horses go by, and you know, you'd hear the the horses. I mean, they're just just a pile of dust, and then behind them are these two little girls walking with these halters and these lead ropes going after these horses. And typically the horses are fine. They're wonderful horses. They're easy to catch. But this particular day, they did not want to be caught. And they were running all over the place, and it was blistering hot that day. And, and I just I looked across the pasture a couple hundred yards from the house, and my heart just broke with pity. 
at these little girls that are they're trying to get these horses uh you know corralled up so they could get them into the trailer and as hot as it was and i knew that they were probably thinking oh we're gonna be late and dad's gonna be upset because we haven't got up with the horses yet blah 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 and so out of pity i said well i'm gonna go down there and help them they've been chasing these horses around probably 20 minutes as a matter of fact when i looked at one of the horses this kind of uh has a light colored coat it was sopping wet with sweat they had been running for a while and so I said, well, I'll go down there and try to help them. So I picked up a, a bag of peppermint treats. If you want to title this sermon, you can title it Peppermint Treats. So I picked up the uh, bag of peppermint treats, and uh, I walked down into the pasture, and I just jiggled that bag a little bit, and I just hollered for them. And within seconds, I've got five horses gathered around me, sitting there eating out of my hand, Right? And the girls come up and we're able to get them and take them on. And I thought a lot about that. You see, horses are not predators. Horses are prey animals. Meaning that you will never find a horse sneaking through the grass up on trying to get to a rabbit so it can pounce on the rabbit and eat it. It's not in their nature to do that. Horses are prey animals, meaning that their greatest defense is to run. It's to get away from you. Because they're not the hunters, they're the hunted. Are you with me? And so on this particular day, these horses were, were uh, exercising that natural instinct uh, that a prey animal has, and that is to get away from something that is trying to catch them. Are you with me? And the girls, they called and they tried to talk in those soft, sweet voices that they have. And they tried to sneak up. You know, they just tried to do all the things that they knew to do to get to those horses. And those horses in that herd did not want to be caught this particular day. And when one of them took off, that just ignites that instinct in the other ones for the other ones to take off. Are you with me now? But I had something that could make them stop. I had something that could get their attention and get their mind off the fact that they were being hunted in a sense and they were trying to be harnessed and captured. I had something that could take their mind off of that and for a moment they forgot all about it and the next thing you know they're eating right out of my hand. And I thought a whole lot about that because the Bible describes God's people as sheep. And sheep also are not predators. You don't find a sheep sneaking up on the rabbit either. You find a sheep running from things. They're not hunters, they're the hunted. And so I thought a lot about that in the sense that the devil is tirelessly working, trying to find whatever it is that will get our attention take our mind off the fact that He is hunting us to stop and forget that for a moment and slow down and give Him the opportunity to get a hold on us. Are you with me now? Now, I want to take a verse in 1 Peter for just a second. In 1 Peter, the 5th chapter, I want to read a verse here that paints that picture. Let me get to it. 1 Peter, the 5th chapter, in the 8th verse, it says this. It says to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, there's the hunter, as a roaring lion, 
walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, the picture there is of the hunter. The hunter. You've got the sheep that are God's people. And then over here you've got the Bible describing Satan or the devil or the great adversary as the hunter. And the hunter does something very similar to what I did that day. He tries to figure out how to get your attention, how to get you to lay aside those instincts to flee and just stand still for a minute and see what he has to offer so he can get that halter and that lead rope on you. The Bible calls it getting a good foothold on you. Now, it's interesting to me here that the Bible tells us that we're to be sober. To sober, uh, you know, if you think about the, the definition of being drunk or intoxicated, when you're drunk or intoxicated, that's when your faculties are not working like they're supposed to. Your reaction time is not what it's supposed to be. Your balance is not what it's supposed to be. Your vision is not what it's supposed to be. Now, if I'm walking through the plains of Africa, and I'm walking through the sawgrass, and I know that there are lines all over this prairie. I want to have my balance. I want to have my vision. I want to have all of my faculties operating at 110%. Because I don't want him wrapping his jaws around my leg. But can you imagine walking through those plains with the sawgrass swaying and somewhere in that grass are, are crouched, roaring, hungry lions? And you're walking through there and you can barely take one step without stumbling over. And you, can, you can't see all that clear. And your reaction time is poor. You make yourself so much more susceptible. Now obviously here, I'm not talking about being drunk on wine. But God's people oftentimes are drunk on so many other things. Meaning that they have ingested something over and over and over and over to where they are not operating with a keen sense of awareness that they should be. Now I'll tell you this, and I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings, but it's the truth. You know what America's drunk on right now? The news. America is drunk on the news. They sit there and they watch it 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 and then they go talk about it and they talk about it and they talk about it and then they go back to it and they watch it and they watch it and they watch it and they're intoxicated with it. And sometimes it, it affects our minds so much that we do not walk with the spiritual balance and the spiritual eyesight of 2020 that we need to have. Now I'm not telling you the news is the devil. I'm just telling you that we're drunk with the news in today's sense, and it's got us distracted. Do you understand? Yes. As God's people, as sheep, we spend a great deal of our lives trying to get away from that which is hunting us, and that's the devil. You do better off staying away from him if you run in that herd. And I'm looking at a herd this morning. You stay with the herd and you stay with the group and you have a lot better chance of outrunning them because when one of us has a sense of alarm, it ought to trigger something in the rest of us to go and get away from something. But sometimes the old devil comes along and he waits till we're so drunk with something mentally and he's looking for an opportunity to dangle something in front of us so he can get a foothold on us. Are you with me? So we are to be sober. We can be drunk on the latest news, as I said. Which I've said this at Bethlehem before. 
Do you know the news is the most negative influence in your life? Do you know that if you had a friend that reported things to you like the news does, that you know you wouldn't put up with it? You would say, you are so cotton-picking negative, I can't stand to be around you. That's the way the news is. At Bethlehem one day I said, you know, I want you to imagine the news personified. And you go and you sit down on a park bench with somebody named the news. And the news is going to lean over to you and say, you know somebody died. You know somebody was murdered yesterday, don't you? Yeah, I know that. I heard that. Did you hear about that building that caught on fire? Yeah, heard that too. Did you hear about that teacher that did something they shouldn't have done? Yeah, I heard it. Negative, 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 negative. But you know, we in our human nature, what do we love? We love the drama. We love the car wreck. Have you ever driven down the interstate and seen a mangled mess of a wreck over here and said, I just don't want to look at that? (laughs) Never. Why? We love to see the carnage and the drama and the train wreck. And so we're so glued to it that the next thing you know, spiritually speaking, we're staggering through life with our spiritual eyesight being fuzzy. But the Bible says here that we are to be sober, to be circumspect, to be discreet, to be vigilant, to be aware, to be looking, to be wise, to walk through this life as you were walking through that plains of, the plains of Africa, taking a step cautiously and looking. Where is it? Where is the thing that is hunting me? Take another step and move through life in that manner because there is a roaring line. And I also think this is interesting. Do you notice it doesn't say a quiet, still, creeping line? It says a roaring line. And that tells me a line that is roaring is pretty easy to identify. And maybe sometimes we're so blind that we don't realize that what we're walking into is roaring at us. Are you with me? There's a roaring line that is hunting. And He is going to take whatever measure necessary to get you to stop and forget what's really happening and ease over to Him and the next thing you know, you're eating right out of His hand. And then the halter's put on you and the lead rope's put on you and you've been had. So we are to be sober and we are to be vigilant. Now, in the book of 2 Corinthians, let me read you this verse also about the devil. In verse 11, 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 11, it says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Number one, that tells me Satan is not only a roaring lion that we should combat with sobriety and vigilance, it also tells me that he's got a pocket full of devices And those particular devices can give him an advantage over us. Now, anybody that's ever played uh, any kind of game or sporting or uh, athletic event or whatever, the name of the game is to get an advantage. When I was in high school and we we would, you know, on the football team, we would have to sit down and watch tapes of our opponent. the opponent we were about to play, their last week's game, and we would have to study those things. 
to try to find some sort of advantage. If you're in the military and you're going into battle, there are people that sit down and study maps and strategies and all that stuff to try to get an advantage. If you're on a basketball team and, and, and there's a guy playing a certain position that's five foot tall, you want to get an advantage, put the six foot tall guy over there to play against him. Anything to give us an edge. Well, the devil has a pocket full of devices to try to get an edge on us. In my case with the horses, it was a bag of peppermint treats. They got them to slow down, forget that they were being uh, pursued, and to eat out of my hand. Now, I want to look at some of the devil's devices this morning. Now, to do that, I want to go back into the Old Testament and look at the life of a man named David. If you go to the book of 1 Samuel, let's look at just a few examples of how this process works. In the book of 1 Samuel, and we'll be about chapter 17, this is a very familiar passage, a very, uh, a very familiar event in David's life. Up to this point, David is just a young boy at this age. Um, you know, He may be 15 or 16 or something like that, but he's a young boy. David has been anointed as king, but not in a real public way. You know, um, when, when, um, when Samuel came to anoint David as king, it wasn't a big to-do. But he anoints him as king, so we know that David has been anointed as king, but he is not the king yet. We know that Saul is the king. We know that Saul is, is uh, you know, in today's terms, he's a madman. He's, he, he has moments of just pure insanity. And he's so vexed and he's so troubled at times that the suggestion is made is let's let somebody come in here, Saul, when you're in a real bad way. Let's let somebody come in here and play some real soothing music for, for you to try, just to try to get you off the edge of the cliff. Well, it ends up happening that David is the young man that comes into Saul's courts that plays for him on his heart when Saul is vexed. And Saul is so taken and smitten with David that he makes him his armor bearer. So David and Saul, uh, are, you know, David is very well known to Saul. And so the time comes when the Philistines and the Israelites are in battle with, with Saul as their king. And the situation they have in this battle is that the Philistines have set up on one side of a mountain and the Israelites are across the valley on another side and Saul is there. David's three oldest brothers are there. Uh, David is just a lad. He's just a boy and he's not really uh, in a position to go into battle yet. And so you know the story where every day for 40 days, Goliath, the Philistine, who's a giant of a man, comes down out of the mountain, walks into the valley, and begins to bring great reproach against the armies of Israel. And there's no telling what he said about it. If it was a movie, it would probably be a lot of bleeps in there. He probably verbally mocked and defiled the armies of God in front of everybody and says, send somebody out to me and we will fight. If we win... Uh, if the Philistines win, the Israelites will serve us. If the Israelites win, then we'll serve you. And so he does this for 40 days. And the Bible says that the men of the camp were very much afraid. Now, 
I want you to think about David for just a second. <clears throat> what happens is David, David's father, sends David towards the towards the army, towards the camp, to bring uh, you know some food and things like that to his brothers. So I want you to imagine this young lad who has spent a great deal of time in Saul's courts. He has probably heard a lot of conversations about strategy and war and what to do here and what to do there. So he's very aware that there's a war going on. <clears throat> now he can't pull up his iPhone and look at his phone and get a status update on the war. He can't cut the television on and get a status update of the war. So as he's in the wilderness keeping his sheep, keeping his father's sheep, don't you know that he probably wondered, I wonder how things are going. Haven't heard anything. They've been over there a long time. And so the Bible says that when he gets into the camp, he gets in a chariot and he rides over there to get into the camp. And what does this young boy find? He is probably very eager to get an update. What does he find? He finds all the valiant warriors of Israel trembling in their boots. Now, don't you know that hopelessness had to be present there? I can imagine if I was a 14 or 15 year old boy and there was a situation and all the grown men were, were terrified... If I find out that here's a situation and my dad is terrified and my uncle is terrified and my grandfather is terrified and my coaches are terrified and the fathers of my friends are terrified, you know what that would do to a young man? It'd make him terrified. Because the great men of our camp are very much afraid. That's when hopelessness begins to sweep in. Now, there's a roaring line pursuing David here. And he brings a bag of hopelessness to it and begins to shake it. Slow down, David. Slow down. Quit thinking about your God. Quit thinking about His power. Quit thinking about His might. Quit thinking about His past deliverance and listen to me. I have dispatched the demon of hopelessness to come to your doorstep and I need you to give him your undivided attention. Because if I can get you to look at, to give hopelessness your undivided attention, then it is most certain that my great warrior Goliath will destroy the armies of God. But what does David do? David doesn't have hopelessness. David doesn't begin to eat out of the hand of the devil right then, does he? David remains very confident. And as he goes into the camp, you find the demeanor of David. When I picture David, I picture David walking through that camp like, what's the problem, guys? Gird up your loins and get your swords and get your shields. You are citizens and you are soldiers in the army of God. Get out there and fight this battle trusting that the Lord is at the helm of the ship. He hasn't eaten out of the devil's hand yet. Well, David, you don't know about Goliath. Before you get all puffed up, let me tell you about Goliath. Let me tell you about his armor. Let me tell you about how big the sword is he has and how heavy the head of his spear is. Let me tell you how tall he is. 
I mean, he's probably 10 feet tall. David, you're just a little young teenage boy. So get off your high horse. Quit talking to us about hopelessness, hopelessness because all the armies of Israel are over there just to eat. And, the, and, the, and Satan, the adversary, the roaring lion, has come to David and he needs David in here eating. But David walks around and says, I'm not eating out of the hand of hopelessness because I trust in the living God. So hopelessness is ineffective against David. So Satan dispatches fear. He says, let me tell you about Goliath, how awesome he is and how bad he is and how much it's going to hurt when he begins to break and bruise your body. Let's dispatch fear and see if he'll eat out of the hand of fear. But David goes on, as you know the story, and he says, I'm not eating out of that hand because I've seen that hand before. That hand came to me as a lion and as a bear in the wilderness trying to take my father's sheep and God delivered me out of their hands. I'm not eating out of the hand of fear. I'm going to continue to move and stay away from this roaring lion that's coming after me and you're not going to get me with fear. We know the story that David slays Goliath. Time, a little bit of time goes by and as this army and as King Saul begins to come back in to, uh, to the city after they've destroyed the Philistines they come back into the city Saul is coming in and he's probably puffed up a little bit there's probably a lot of pomp and circumstance going on here and you can read about it in let's see if I can find it here let's go to chapter 18 as they come back in here It says, And it came to pass as they came and David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabarets, with joy, and with instruments of music. You see the picture there? King Saul, the great king who we secretly know was trembling in his boots over here and had to rely on the faith of a young boy to be delivered. But Saul comes back in. Great King Saul probably standing with his chest puffed out. We've led the armies of Israel into victory. And the women come out and they start to sing and they start to dance and they start to play all these instruments and then they start to put some lyrics to the music they're making. And it says, And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now what does a king not like to hear? That somebody else is admired more than him. But all of a sudden the city is saying, oh yeah, Saul, you're awesome. But David is super awesome. You've slain a thousand, but he's slain his ten thousands. And Saul says, well, what has this guy got but the kingdom? And Saul begins, becomes to get very jealous. Hopelessness came to David and he wouldn't eat out of that hand. Fear came to David and he would not eat out of that hand. Now pride has come to David. I want you to imagine how you would feel. Now just be real honest because I know the nature you've got because I've got the same nature. If you've got people praising you more than the highest authority in this country and they're saying you are so much more effective, you are so much more capable than the highest authority in this country and people are singing about it 
What if you flipped on the radio and there's a song being sung about how you are so much more greater than the, the president? It'd be easy to get a little bit puffed up, would it not? The next time that you're, uh, you know, you walk in and somebody at the pharmacy and the pharmacy doesn't treat you exactly like they want to and they says, well, I'm sorry, you don't have any more refills or you got to wait or blah, blah, blah. Have you not heard the songs about me and how great I am? Give me what I need now. That's our human nature. So here comes pride. All right. We couldn't get him with hopelessness. We couldn't get him with fear. Let's dispatch pride and see if we can get him so puffed up that he'll quit thinking about the God of Israel and he'll slow down for a minute and start looking at himself because if I can just get him to eat out of the hand of pride, I'll be able to get something on him. I'll be able to get a hold on him. But we know that that doesn't work. Saul is so upset with David that there comes a time when David and Saul are in a room and they're fixing to eat and Saul's playing the harp to try to calm down crazy Saul. David's playing the harp to try to calm down crazy Saul. And Saul is so overcome with jealousy that he picks up his javelin, his spear, and he says, I'm going to pin David to the wall with it. Now it sounds to me like Saul is just gorging himself on the hand of Satan. But here's David and he picks up the javelin and he throws it at David to try to pin him to the wall. That was Saul's own words. And David dodges it. And that's not the only time he does that. We can't get him with hopelessness. We can't get him with fear. We can't get him with pride. Let's get him with anger. Saul, what are you doing? I I took care of Goliath. It is because of me that Israel is safe and not enslaved to the Philistines this day. How many times have I sat here when I was about to fall asleep playing this harp because you're some cotton-picking crazy man and you're trying to kill me? Do you see how anger could easily well up inside of him? Let's see if we can get him to eat out of the hand of anger. But David does not. So I want you to picture... I want you to picture the devil for a second. Wringing his hands and pacing a little bit. And here we've got this guy who has been anointed the king. And he is going to be a man after God's own heart. He has destroyed Goliath. He is dodging every single thing I try to get him to do to stop and slow down and pay attention to me so I can get a foothold on him. He doesn't bite on it. He is a horse still galloping around the pasture and I cannot get him to stop. Now, couldn't get him with hopelessness, couldn't get him with pride, couldn't get him with all that. And I can imagine the devil saying, I'll tell you what, let's dispatch fear again. And the demons say, no, no, no. Do you not remember fear didn't work? If fear was ever going to work, uh, it would have worked with Goliath. Fear's not going to work. And the devil says, send it back out there. I'm a roaring lion. And I'm seeking whom I can devour. Jiggle the bag of fear again. And hold the hold fear out in your hand. Let's see if we can get him to eat out of it again. And for some reason, for some reason, David stops and he hears the jiggle of that bag. And he walks up one step closer and one step closer. And before you know it, this great, valiant man of Israel 
is eating out of the hand of the devil and he's eating nothing but fear. And he's taken his eyes off God. He's taken his eyes off the victories that he's had with the lion and the bear. He's taken his eyes off the victory that he's had with Goliath. And he's eating out of the hand of the devil. And the devil just slowly slips that halter on him, ties the knot, and bam, he's got it. And this is what happens. As, Saul begin, as David begins to eat out of the hand of fear, he no longer stands as a valiant man of Israel. He turns into a chicken. And he starts running. And he leaves and he runs and he comes to a place called Nob to a priest whose name is Ahimelech. Now you can read about this in 1 Samuel the 21st chapter. And he's fled and he's starving and he's hungry and he has no weapon and he's being hunted by Saul. He's being hunted by the devil also. And you go on down to verse 9 or verse 8 and it says, And David said unto Himelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. See, he tells the king, the reason I'm here is because King Saul has sent me on this top secret important mission, lie, and I left in such a hurry, I forgot to pick up my sword and shield, lie. You see, when you start eating out of the hand of the devil, you begin to do things that you would normally do. David begins to walk with intoxication. David begins to walk drunk on fear because he's been sitting here ingesting it constantly from the devil. And he is not operating like the same David that operated when he fought Goliath. And he asked Ahimelech the priest for a sword. And it is not coincidence and it is not irony that the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, take that, take it. For there is no other save that here. See, the Ahimelech says, Well, it's kind of funny you ask, David. I have no weapons. The only weapon I've got is wrapped up in some cloth and it's stuck back over there behind some junk. And it just so happens to be the sword of Goliath. Maybe it still had the blood on it for when David used it to cut off Goliath's head. He said, that's the only one I've got. You know, and David could have stopped. A sober David, a sober David would have stopped and said, that sword could not deliver my enemy out of my hand when God was on my side. Neither will it deliver me out of the hand of my enemy if God is not on my side. That's what a sober David would have said. But this is a drunk David because he's been feasting out of the hand of fear. And David says, there is none like that. Give it me. That's what it says. Give it me. Give it to me. So David walks over there and he, here, here's the picture of David holding this giant sword of Goliath whom he knew couldn't deliver his enemy and he's holding it with these big wide eyes saying there is none like it. 
I could travel the world over looking for weapons. And this is the best one I could ever find. What a great and mighty sword. A drunk David is now trusting in a sword. Where the sober David trusted in the Lord to guide a small, smooth stone out of a sling to slay the giant. Do you see the difference? There's two very different Davids here. What's, 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 what makes one different David than the other? Because one of them stopped to eat when the Lord, when the devil jiggled that bag of fear. Now, we know that sometime later that the, uh, the devil dispatches the demon of lust. Maybe one of the most powerful ones. He dispatches the demon of lust. And David eats out of that hand and pretty much destroys his household. Pretty much destroys his household. Do you know that the devil, that same roaring lion, takes our Lord and Savior and jiggles that bag. You can read about that in Matthew, the fourth chapter. He jiggles that bag in front of the Lord and says, and he appeals to the Lord's humanity, his natural desires, when the Lord has been fasting for 40 something days. And he says, if you'll just serve me, if you'll just serve me, turn these, turn these rocks into bread. He appeals to his natural desires, and the Lord, the Lord resists. Then Satan comes to him and he appeals to his pride. And then he comes to him and he appeals to his greed. If you'll just serve me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you'll just serve me, if you'll just serve me, he's trying to get the Lord to eat out of the bag, but I'm thankful that the Lord did not eat out of that bag. Because Satan never got a foothold on our Savior. And he tried. We are, we are not described as horses. We are described as sheep. The devil is described as a roaring lion. And that roaring lion tirelessly, tirelessly comes after us, offering us things to try to get us to slow down so we will eat and ingest and become drunk on whatever it is that he wants us to get drunk on. And when you're drunk, you're not spiritually stable. When you're drunk, you, and when you are not vigilant. What's the conclusion of the matter? One conclusion is to be sober and to be vigilant. How do you know if you're sober? Let me tell you, if there is anything that you are doing that is taking your mind off of the Lord and His stability, and His power, and making you have feelings of hopelessness, or fear, or anger, or pride, you are not sober. And I encourage you to get sober. How do you get sober? You quit ingesting whatever it is that's making you drunk. Whether that's the news, whether that's a bad relationship, whether that's your phone, whether that's whatever. Get rid of it. Life is too short. And the damage that can be done through letting the devil get a foothold of you is so catastrophic that children of God can't afford to let him get a foothold. I feel like when the devil looks back at the world today and the Lord looks back at the world today, for the most part, the devil is applauding. I like what I see. 
And I think the Lord stands over here and He's grieved. But I hope that the Lord looks at these little nooks and crannies around where His people are gathered together to meet. And I hope that brings a smile across His face. I hope the Lord sees the devil, that roaring lion, shaking that bag and God's people saying, let's go that away." And I hope He smiles. But let me leave you with this. Maybe you have already found yourself drunk on something. Let's go back to David as we close. David takes the sword of Goliath. Maybe you're holding the sword of Goliath. I've held it many times and I'll hold it again. Maybe we're holding the sword of Goliath as David was. And David takes that sword and he flees and goes into Gath, the hometown of Goliath. And when he gets into Gath, the king there says, wait a minute, isn't that David? Isn't that David and isn't that Goliath's sword? Isn't this the guy that killed our warrior, our mascot, our pride and joy? And David realizes that he's been recognized. Again, he's eating out of that hand of fear. And the Bible said, and he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gates and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Alright, you see David? Look at this pitiful man. The pitiful man David holding Goliath's sword, scribbling on the gates of the city, letting his spit run down his beard. He does not seem like a man anointed king. He seems like a sloppy drunk. Why? Because he stopped and ate what the devil was offering. And I love this next chapter. It says, it says David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. Sometimes we find ourselves holding the sword of Goliath with spit running down our face, hiding in the cave of Adullam. Now, in this cave, we find him pinning Psalms 142. And I think there was a great deal of reflection as he sat in that cave. And he begins to write, or maybe sometime later wrote his thoughts that he had in this cave. And I think David began to sober up. And David began to think about the times that he had been delivered. And David begins to think about grasping Goliath's sword. And he begins to think about uh, turning himself into a madman to escape. He thinks about running from Saul. He thinks about fleeing. And his senses begin to come back to him. And he writes this. He says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make supplication. You want to sober up? Step one is cry out to the Lord. I poured out my complaint before Him. I showed before Him my trouble. What's his trouble? Well, he's being hunted by Saul. He's being hunted by the devil. And he is guilty of eating out of the hand of the devil. And his heart is broken in grief for the things that are happening to him and the things that he has done. 
And it says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me. You ever felt that way? I promise you, if you walk through this life with the sword of Goliath, you will find your spirit overwhelmed as a child of God. You will find yourself in the cave. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path and the way wherein I walked. Have they privily laid a snare for me? Notice this. He says, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Alright, we've got to meet out of the hand of fear. Let's dispatch loneliness. And let's double up on it. And David eats. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion. In the land of the living, attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountiful with me. David is crying out, I am not in a prison as in the prison cell walls. I am in a cave. I'm alone. I have forsaken you. I have fled. I have picked up the sword of Goliath. I've let spit run down my face for fear. God, I'm a mess and I'm overwhelmed with what I am. That's where you'll be if you stop and eat out of the hand of the devil. But he says, I'm crying out to you. And he says, the righteous shall compass me about. And I want you to notice this. Maybe you have been avoiding the devil and running from the devil and staying with the herd and I praise God for you. Keep doing it. But maybe you're in the cave like David. What do you do if you're in that cave? Do what David did. As David is writing these words or at least reciting them in his head, there are 400 men that God has stirred up to go to where David's at. And David has no clue they're coming. But David prophetically says, the righteous shall compass me about. He cried out to the Lord and the Lord said, Satan, you have fed my servant too long. And you have harnessed him too long. And I'm sending him 400 men to comfort him and to go with him. And it says as he was in that cave, his brethren and his father's house heard of it. And they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. I imagine when David left that cave, I bet he left that sword behind. And I bet he wiped his face. And he stood no longer as a sloppy drunk. But he stood there as a captain once again over God's armies. Brothers and sisters, you are being hunted. And He will throw at you anger and He will offer you pride and jealousy and coveting and lust and He'll offer you hopelessness. He'll offer you fear. He'll offer you loneliness. He will never stop offering you things in order to get you to stop and take your eyes off the Lord. And if you have, 
if you've eaten out of that hand. Cry out to God because you never know what he's stirring up over here. And you may say, I'll never stand like I stood before. You may say, I'll never stand victorious over Goliath again. Yes, you can. David stood again as a captain over his people. So I encourage you, stay with the herd and run and run and trust that the Lord will give you flight and strength under those legs of yours. And be sober and be vigilant, trusting that the Lord has crushed the head of our greatest enemy. And while He may torment us in this life, there is coming a day that we will stand in glory and there will be a great expanse between us and He cannot come where we are. And I rejoice in that. But until then, I encourage you to stay sober and stay vigilant.